Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. This is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal here is to find the top performers in any industry. Uh, These are people that could be one in a hundred, one in a thousand. Uh, They're the geniuses of their fields. My goal is to ask them questions they haven't been asked before uh, so that they can uh, give useful topics and in, you know, in, info to listeners that they'll uh, be interested in. So today I have uh, Professor Emeritus Lee Bartel. He's also a PhD. Um, he was at University of Toronto as a former Associate Dean of Research and Founding Director of the Music and Health Research Collaboratory at the Faculty of Music, University of Toronto. We're going to be talking about um, how cells uh, are affected by sound, uh, probably cancer cells as well, but uh, we'll get into all that. So Lee, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, can you give a little bit of background? How did the idea of sound interacting with cells first come to you? Well, I go back to the uh, some uh, many years, in fact, when I did my uh, graduate work at the University of Illinois in the 80s. My focus became looking at how people respond to music. And I looked specifically at uh, you know emotional response, intellectual response, and it didn't occur to me at that point that that response might be beyond what we typically think of music as music, sort of the learned cognitive response, which can be analytic or emotional or associated or whatever. Um, and in the 90s, I encountered a project where we were trying to um, remediate or re- give uh, rehabilitate attention in kids who had had, like adolescents who had had front brain injuries and car accidents, smashing their head against a windshield, etc. And they were having serious attention problems. And so I worked with a team there to try to find ways of using music to uh, rehabilitate attention. So I started to realize there's more to music than what we typically would think of music as music, that there's music that functions in relationship to brain circuits and brain functions. And then um, in the late 90s, I started working with a company uh, with Somerset Entertainment, uh, then called Solitudes, to create brainwave and training music where we use very specific rhythmic structures in the in music and binaural detunement and all those sorts of things to try to create music that would affect brainwaves. So it would help people go to sleep or would help people relax, etc. And uh, slowly, as you know, as the years went by, my in, insight into how music and sound affects the body and brain in, in, you know, expanded until I got to the place where I wasn't just looking at music as music, as a cognitive process, as how you think about it or listen, enjoy, and so on, but rather sound as a vibration, as a, as a pulsed stimulus. And that led me into looking at in a sense, I'd done that with, you know, trying to use uh, music that was going at, had a beta two times a second to entrain um, delta brainwaves for sleep and so on. And I just took that a step further to say, uh, if we, you know, give a frequency, let's say 40 hertz, 
uh, or 50 hertz or 30 hertz where you have uh, sound that is clearly audible as a low frequency sound and is coming at you at, at 40 uh, molecular compressions per second that will still be um, a, a, a stimulant to the brain at that frequency. And uh, what we started to find, of course, is that, that this was observable with EEG. The, the brain cells uh, fired at that frequency at which they were stimulated. And then, you know, more, more recently, uh, I found that expanded to the place where, uh, for example, uh, when you stimulate um, the, the blood vessels with, uh, let's say, a, a 50 hertz stimulus, the endothelial cells in the lining of the blood vessel are stimulated, are pulsed at that frequency, end up releasing nitric oxide, and that enhances blood flow. So what we, you know, at one point thought, you know, we simply are relaxing people, and that maybe makes more blood flow, you know, in the old biofeedback kind of approach. We're now starting to realize that this is really at a we can we can start looking at this much more specifically in terms of mechanism at a cellular level, and so you know it it for, sort of fills in the picture of it goes from music as music to music as sound, sound as vibration, and vibration as a as a stimulant to uh, multiple levels of the body and, and brain and, and blood and so on. So um, when you've observed, for instance, relaxation, how much of an effect did you know? this particular, I guess, what, 40 hertz music have versus other music? Was it dramatically different or just a little bit different? Well, haven't, we haven't used, uh, tried to use 40 hertz, for example, uh, for relaxation. Uh, the, the key is, of course, to target frequency at the desired effect. And so there are, uh, as is commonly known, brain states that are related to uh, brain wave states or what we call oscillatory uh, rhythmic coherence, if you want to be fancy, in terms of <laughs> neuroscience, where more brain waves are firing together and in synchrony, and so that those amount to a delta zero to four pulses per second for sleep, uh, four to seven pulses per second for a deep, deep, relaxed meditative state, uh, seven, eight to twelve for alpha, sort of the state at which we're quite alert but we're very relaxed. And then 12 to 20, the zone where you are problem solving and so on. Those are our brain states. And we've known for a while that though we could induce those states, and many you know, composers and people uh, work with creating sound like that, uh, especially in the last 20 years since I've put out the, the information on all our CDs how to do this. Um, but the idea that we can stimulate at a frequency that's not related to brain state um, that is related to brain circuit function, that's where we get into, into the 30, 40, 50 hertz, into gamma zone. So, for example, the premise here is that brain circuits, um, the intra-brain, the, when one part of the brain needs to communicate to another part of the brain and send out a signal. For example, when you see something, uh, the visual cortex will pick that up at the back of your brain but for the front of your brain, which makes a decision, the executive function to do something about it, um, that signal has to go from the back of the brain to the front of the brain. And then for the front of the brain to say, uh, start running, uh, that has to send a signal to the sensory motor, motor cortex, which sort of runs across the head from ear to ear. Um, and so that kind of a thing is a circuit. 
And what we've found in, uh, we've seen in animal studies and so on, is that that occurs in the gamma frequency in the 30 to 50 hertz range, or so we target it in the middle at about 40. And, and so when somebody, for example, one of the studies I'm trying to analyze right now is with kids who've had their heads radiated uh, after cancer, uh, after having a tumor removed and are, and are getting, um, you know, have full head radiation, they, they tend to have decreased uh, 40 hertz gamma or 30 to 50 hertz gamma activity. And so they're slower, for example, in that kind of a response where they're supposed to uh, hit a space bar on a computer after seeing a particular thing on the computer screen, the normal kids, because that circuit is slowed down. So the assumption is if we can pump that up with more 40, 40 hertz, those sorts of things will start to function better. Yeah, one thing you mentioned about sleep is, uh, do you know of any scientists that, let's say they've uh, tracked someone's sleep cycles and had them you know, played music at the right frequency that matched their level of sleep and their, their, what their brain activity should have been? And did that help them go through the, steep, the stages better and sleep better? Has anyone done something like that? Well, we've, I've done it with, with just quality of sleep, not on a sleep study where they're wired up with EEG equipment. Uh, typical sleep studies are, are actually looking more at not quality of, of sleep through the night. They're looking at, you know, they want to record at least one full uh, REM cycle to see whether how the brain functions because they're looking essentially at oxygen levels and oxygenation in the brain and, and whether the person is is waking with uh, sleep apnea or hypopnea. And so what I was looking at is uh, people who report not being able to sleep or not sleeping well. Uh, so what we did was with 20 people, we played one of my recordings, so music to promote sleep, which has a strong delta a brainwave and train effect. And they listened to this album all night long with earphones. And we had highly significant improvement in the uh, uh, I think we used it on that one, the Jenkins sleep scale. And so as they sort of self-rated their sleep, it was uh, significantly improved. So, yes, we've seen that effect. Uh, I have many, many instances where people are reporting to me, uh, you know, single case, just not scientific, but anecdotal because of the commercial nature of my CDs that, you know, then contact me and say, you know, thanking me for producing the CD and how this has revolutionized their sleep because now they can sleep better. So, but the, the, the uh, you know, that kind of more scientific study where you're actually tracking people and, and using tests and so on, we've seen it in that case as well. So yes, it, it absolutely has an effect. I've done a, a study where I, I, I did EEG with uh, 16 people, I believe it was, uh, undergraduate and graduate students. And where I used the same music as we did in this study with the 20 people. And within six minutes, I could see highly significant, uh, for those of you who like statistics, sort of probability of 0 0.007, uh, uh, improvement in or a rise in delta levels from the first two minutes to the last two minutes in a six-minute block. So uh, in a very short time, we can uh, you know, see a, a significant improvement in delta levels, which means, of course, that people find it easier to go to sleep. So that's been my focus, rather than looking at specifically the depth of the, uh, of the sleep cycle uh, or how you can regulate length of sleep cycle itself. Well, might it be more effective if you were able to match the, um, the frequency of what someone was hearing based on their current stage of sleep? to reinforce each stage and make it more effective? 
and then to wake them up at the end? Well, presumably, you know, you could you could uh, target this. Um, I've never done that, and and I don't see a great need for it because essentially the brain, you know, is not you're you're not putting it on manual drive, saying, well, you know, the next twenty minutes we're going to drop through stages one and two, and then we're going to get to deep sleep for. Uh, the next 30 minutes, then we'll put you into REM cycle and we'll pump you up to a beta level. You know, I mean, actually trying to manage sleep that way, I think would be rather counterproductive probably because not everybody in every case will go through the exact same timing. But in this case, we were just saying the, the basic <clears throat> dominant brain state for sleep is two hertz delta. Uh, that's the deep sleep level. So if we can and that's what people have trouble getting to. They don't have trouble getting to a REM state. The brain pops to that quite naturally, but they have trouble getting into a deep sleep. So if we support the deep sleep the stimulation, that works. Um, you know, but that in, in many ways, that's, that's, that's not news to people. Uh, of my research, what's news, of course, as in the TED Talk, is that we can alleviate pain. And that was the intent of our first sleep study, in fact, was to see whether people with fibromyalgia might have less pain if we improve their sleep. And uh, what we found is that what it did improve was their quality of life. They, uh, on the fibromyalgia impact questionnaire, which looks at multiple factors of, of how you live your life, um, it improved that dramatically. It didn't as dramatically reduce pain. That is the, 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 the sleep improvement. But when we used, and so that was delta stimulation, when we used 40 hertz gamma stimulation to address what we assumed our premise there was that the, one of the mechanisms involved here in fibromyalgia is that there's a, a weakness, a dysregulation in the circuits that are used to process pain. And this had been shown in previous research, neuroscience research. So we stimulated these people with 40 hertz to try to improve that that brain, you know, internal brain circuit function. And sure enough, we had very dramatic improvements in, uh, in pain and quality of life, including sleep and depression and so on. So that, that's, you know, to me, the more exciting world is where you start to say, let's, can we re-regulate brain, st- uh, brain circuits and cellular function in that way, rather than simply induce brain states as we do with sleep or with oh, no, What's what's important about the music? Is it that the bass line is forty hertz, or all the instruments and everything are Ah. at the same rate? Like what you know, how different can the music be but still be effective? So this is the big uh, the big pivot here. Of course, is that on one hand we think of music as music with melody, harmony, form, you know, words, maybe instruments, and so on, and that's that is you know obviously the manifestation of music. But for example, in one of my uh, effective uh, pieces of uh, sets of music, uh, tracks of music we used for a depression study, we addressed uh, essentially three mechanisms of depression. And this was part of a, a big multi-multi-million dollar cross-Canada study in, uh, in depression and trying to find biomarkers. So what we did was we assumed that depression in, in a person is related to um, one might be uh, one aspect can be uh, prefrontal cortex asynchrony. That is, the two sides of the front of the brain are not uh, pulsing in, in a synchronous way. Uh, another dimension that may be present in people is that it's what we call a thalmocortical 
dysrhythmia, the center of the brain, the thalamus, where the brainstem goes in and processes sort of the animal brain, and that connection then to the upper part of the brain, the, 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 the cortex uh, of the human brain, there's a, a loop between that, sort of a, a continuous monitoring loop, and that can become dysregulated or dysrhythmic. Uh, this is the research of Rudolfo Linas at uh, in New York. Um, is that if that happens, one of the consequences can be depression. Another one can be central pain. There can be a whole variety of things depending on where specifically in the cortex this is this becomes dysregulated. And a third area, of course, is that the person may simply be sad, that may be a valence, uh, a general psychological state, and we know that pleasant music can act as a distractor, can, can improve mood, apart from, you know, fancy brain stuff. And so what we did in this case was to use uh, pieces of music that came from an album I created called Music to Inspire Positive Thinking. And so, uh, but this album has very specific things happening in it. One, it's pleasant music. Secondly, there is uh, built into it binaural or two pitches that are detuned from each other, which then uh, reconcile at 10 hertz and at 15 hertz, and also uh, events. So then, in other words, there were things happening at that, that speed. So we were doing brainwave entrainment in the high alpha beta area. And uh, the music coming from both ears in this case does a, a bilateral uh, it, it would affect this asynchrony. The two sides of the brain are getting the same stimulus. Plus, the baseline, and this was most commonly uh, a sine wave that we had implanted at 40 hertz. So we were stimulating the thalmocortical loop where the, the, the frequency that it's supposed to be in a proper rhythm is 10 hertz and 40 hertz. Those are the two sides of the thalmocortical loop. We were giving the person pleasant music and binaurally stimulating uh, music that could resynchronize the, the prefrontal cortex. And what we found was that a very good percentage of, this, of the people respond, were responders who be, became um, very, very significantly less depressed. Uh, also people who had anhedonia, that is people who weren't experiencing pleasure, which is another dimension of, of uh, another category of depression, also improved. And so in this case, it is not just music as music, but music that has very specific things built into it to accomplish, you know, multiple tasks. In other cases, as in our Alzheimer's study, uh, we, we have had, in fact, a published case where the person used uh, this kind of, of music, which had a combination of, of music, uh, 40 hertz baseline or, you know, dominant gamma baseline with 40 being the most common. Uh, and used that and, and got considerably better, or we have used just simply non-musical, just a single pitch. So we just take a sine wave uh, at 40 hertz, um, and for you know people who are interested, 41 hertz uh, is the low, the sound of the lowest E on the key on the piano. Uh, e flat is 39 hertz, so we're sort of in the crack between E and E flat. Uh, but we use uh, a sine wave so that we have a pure, you know, no overtones in it. And with that stimulation, uh, we have to, at that frequency, we have to make it vibrotactile because most earphones will not carry any of that. Computer speakers will not carry any, any of it. Small speakers, you can't hear it at all. So you have to have a subwoofer. Or what's much preferred is a vibrotactile transducer so that you actually 
sit on a chair that has like subwoofer speakers built into it, which I, sh I think I had a picture of it in my TED talk, or the, the, the Sound Oasis VTS-1000 device, which is a portable unit that you can put on a chair or a bed. And that translates this low frequency sound into uh, vibrotactile sensation. So you can feel that frequency, you can hear it and feel it. And that gives you both a, a, a stimulus through the cells in the body, as well as through the, uh, the hearing system. And that's the most effective. So in this case, we had very significant improvement in uh, the symptoms of Alzheimer's with a very relative, uh, very short time, actually, with three hours of stimulation, which, of course, as you probably know, the research aligns with the research being done with mice at uh, MIT in Boston, uh, where they're using, they started using visual flicker at 40 hertz and found that that reduced amyloid beta and tau, the, the thing, the plaque and tangles that people often associate with development of Alzheimer's, but also improved the size of the blood vessels carrying blood to the brain, reduced inflammation, and uh, activated microglia that clean up the crap in the brain. So sort of the biggest causes of Alzheimer's and dementia they addressed. And they have since we did ours with auditory vibrotactile stimulation, they did visual flicker. Their most recent published paper uh, was combining those three things. So when you combine visual flicker, auditory flicker, and vibrotactile flicker, in essence, so vibration at 40, sound at 40, and light flicker at 40, uh, you get the most dramatic reduction in uh, Alzheimer's uh, effects. How many treatments did they need to have and what percentage reduction was it? Um, our first study, our little pilot was, um, we did it with, with 18 people. Uh, six were mild Alzheimer's, six were moderate Alzheimer's, and six were, were advanced, uh, and, and they're harder to treat. We found it most successful. But overall, uh, with just three hours, that is, we did uh, two, uh, half an hour twice a week for three weeks, uh, with just vibrotactile and auditory stimulation, we got a 13% improvement in uh, test scores across the entire population. So some did considerably better, of course, some not quite so well as the typical case. Um, and so the, at, at the MIT study with the mice, they found that with one, uh, with, uh, well, they did the, you know, most, most, realistic is the study they did with light flicker in the room uh, one hour a day for seven days and they got about a 55 percent reduction in the amyloid beta and the plaque stuff in the brain it's harder to test the mice for uh, you know mood and communication skills and, right. and memory <laughs> they don't answer tests very well but they did see some uh, improvement in the mice finding that running through a maze and finding their food and rec you know those sorts of things as well so these Alzheimer's well, um, what happened after the uh, therapy was done? Did they did you test people maybe a month later to see if uh, the the improvements held? Uh, the the big surprise for us uh, when we started, we assumed that we would perhaps get an effect from you know before the thirty minute stimulation and then after. We had heard of a study in Germany or in Austria rather that uh, where they had seen considerable improvement through brain stimulation, but the effects were gone in an hour. Uh, so when we started seeing that this was cumulative, that is, even though there was a gap of, of three or four days between these treatments over the three weeks, the people seemed to get better after each one. We had an effect size of um, 
around 0.5 of them, memory is right, on that study uh, where, uh, you know, every, every, uh, every treatment is added to the effect of the previous treatment so that uh, uh, we actually had almost 0.6 uh, improvement per session so that over the six sessions, uh, we got that kind of uh, about a 13% on that particular test scale improvement. Um, how long did it last is the question. Um, we, did a, we did a washout before we did the, we did a cross case uh, kind of an approach. So they were either watching a DVD of nature videos, which was sort of our control, uh, or getting the stimulation, sitting in the same chair, same therapist, same room, everything except one was the sound stimulation, the other one they were watching uh, a video. And the washout period between the two was close to two weeks. And what we saw in the results was that there was a slight decrease in the, uh, the uh, watching the DV, DVD uh, effect, and uh, it wasn't hugely significant uh, at all. But uh, the slight decrease uh, we attributed to the fact that the effect from the vibration treatment wasn't completely gone yet. In other words, uh, most of them had, um, had lost the effect after two weeks. Um, I had a case, it's not published, but I've been monitoring this, this individual case very closely. And this person uh, who was diagnosed um, at one point at uh, uh, a particular score um, on the standard MMSE test for Alzheimer's, uh, then about a year later was down to almost 50% of that score and then started the treatment. So the person was at a moderate level of Alzheimer's, sort of a medium level, um, at the point at which this person lost uh, their driver's license because they could, they got tended to get confused spatially, etc. And after six weeks of about five times a, 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 five times a week for about six weeks, the person was retested, and they had gained um, by um, almost 100% of the score. They were back to their original score uh, that they had been tested when they were first tested as mild Alzheimer's. So they, it didn't eliminate it, but it basically rolled it back by that much. And that maintained itself then uh, for, I would let's see, it was from October to April. So six, seven, eight months um, with no apparent uh, decline. And then the person went on a vacation for six weeks at which they didn't use the stimulus and came back and it appeared that the person had dropped back to pretty much uh, the worst level uh, of, of, of the disease. So uh, it, it needs to be sustained. Um, we're not sure how dramatically that decrease happens, but we know it happens if the stimulus isn't maintained. In the pain study, we had uh, this, this improvement, um, uh, which we had uh, quite a dramatic improvement across the board. About a, close to a third of the patients out of 19 uh, went off all their medication, um, their sleep and so on was improved. And when we did the follow-up, we basically got a report that by two weeks later, most of them had had a return of the symptoms. Uh, some, it came as early as eight days, but on average, it was close to two weeks after not having the, the treatment. Okay. So that is, we know it, it needs a continu uh, sort of a maintenance of the uh, stimulus, but 
you know, well, and how long it sustains. I know the, the one case we published, the person was diagnosed at a level, um, we started the treatment, and three years after the original diagnosis, so two years of the stimulus, the person was still at the same level of the original diagnosis. In other words, they hadn't deteriorated at all, but they kept, they were continuously maintaining the, the therapy. So in essence, we basically stopped the development of, of Alzheimer's. Um, it's kind of a, a side note. That's great that it's working already. And I'm sure with, you know, maybe quarterly treatments or, you know, maybe more treatments over a month, it might stay longer. Um, yeah. This is a, a real side angle thing. You know, on YouTube, I've seen like they have like 40 hertz music, music to focus to, binaural beats, et cetera. Um, have you ever listened to any of that stuff and tested it to see if it's good or if it's just junk? <laughs> I have, and the, the ones that I tested were absolutely were actually not 40 hertz. They typically give you isochronous beats, and those they weren't accurate. Uh, this is, uh, you know, one of the one of the problems actually in the field that I'm in um, is that <clears throat> there's so much what I'll call noise uh, crap would be a more <laughs> realistic, uh, you know, description on the internet under you know very well-meaning and in some cases, potentially, you know, there's, there's truth to what is being maintained, but, you know, some of it is in the category of urban myths, some in the case of, you know, the reverse of conspiracy theory, where people will say, well, you know, if only we had stayed within orchestra instrumental tuning at 432 instead of God of 440, the world would be a much better place. Or we've discovered this chamber in a pyramid in Egypt, and it resonates at 111 hertz, and that was intentional because if you stimulate yourself at 111, then all your aches and pains and bad things go away. Or if you use 528 hertz, well, then the, the telomeres that, that should, you know, break off as you age will re- regrow and you'll get younger, uh, and, and the DNA will fix itself. Uh, you know, the whole notion of sound uh, sound baths and sound healing. Yeah, I mean, it's most of it is not scientific. We battle this notion of sound stimulation from a scientific standpoint. So I try actually to, to say most of the time what we're doing is, it, you know, it, it's we're using sound as a brain stimulant, not unlike electric stimulation from repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or deep brain stimulation. And I've actually published uh, explanation papers with people who do that kind of work. Uh, and we argue, you know, for the, for the, the commonality, but one must start to see that there is, has to be a mechanism basis for the claim. Otherwise just making claims, um, you know, is, is just, in my opinion, counterproductive. Uh, you know, I was just curious about that. <clears throat> so do you have a, um, a commercial version of the music that you've created that is, you know, let's say 40 hertz or for other, uh, like, like what have you created that's commercially available or is it still mostly in the, uh, in the lab? No, well, we have obviously music we create for, for research purposes, but I put out four tracks on um, a, a website that's under soundoasis.com, and, uh, and it's one of the pull-down you know, for low-frequency or uh, vibroacoustic uh, research or vibroacoustic soundtracks or whatever it is. People will find it if they look for it. Um, and so I've, I've got uh, soundtracks there that are that can be downloaded that are the exact tracks that we use in our research for fibromyalgia, for example, that's research track two. 
the one that's most like what we used in the Alzheimer's study is research track one. Uh, there's a research track three, which is 30 hertz, which is like uh, a, a study which was done with Parkinson's to very good success most recently. And we're just, I'm just seeing the, the finished paper or the paper getting sort of through its last stages now because my postdoc is working on it uh, for Parkinson's. And there they use 40 hertz with very good success. So, yeah, these, these uh, tracks are available for download. They're around, I don't know, $49 or something. And then, of course, my CDs are, uh, have been around for many years. Uh, and so tracks like uh, the music um, to inspire positive thinking, um, and I shouldn't promote you know, this because I, it's, it's one of the big ripoffs of my life, is that um, people put these things up on YouTube and it's hard to control, um, but some of them are, are up there. Uh, you can buy some of the albums still on Amazon. Um, I think they're probably for download on iTunes or Apple Music. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot of my, I've done 25 or so uh, recordings with Brainwave Entrainment for Brain State. And now for 40 hertz, it's basically going through, uh, through uh, Sound Oasis. A few of the albums, the most recent albums, like the music to inspire positive thinking, has the low frequency in it. Uh, music for the mind, happiness is another one that has a low frequency uh, design for vibroacoustic treatment. And so, like I said, the, uh, the treatment we actually used in, a, in this study, which is published um, half public, well, the first paper is published, the EEG brain imaging isn't yet published, uh, for the depression study used the music from music to inspire positive thinking just as it comes off the CD, but through a vibrotactile device. And so this, the other part of my commercial, you know, I would hardly call it success because uh, I'm, I make so little money off of any of it, but the device that I've, I've worked on and design and endorse is the Sound Oasis VTS Vibroacoustic Therapy System, VTS 1000, currently out of stock since my TED Talks went up last fall on the TED site. <laughs> They've all sold out in North America, but they're apparently going to be restocked by the end of April. Um, so that device is has some of this music on board. All the music on board is music I created for, for the device, and, uh, and others can be played through it, as well as the therapy, the research therapy tracks that I have. So yeah, it's it's all uh, available commercially. And then what um, what do you think is going to be the future of this uh, this sound therapy over the next few years? Um, I think there will be considerably more expansion of of application. Uh, my own personal work up to this point has been primarily with the brain effects and using it as a brain stimulant. I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, sort of the effect on blood, um, and that that still is in 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 a research stage. I've worked a bit with uh, people who are looking at, at blood flow and how you might stimulate it. We worked at one point and it didn't get put through uh, because we sort of pulled it out, but an application for a research study where we would look at trying to prevent heart failure. Uh, there have been some good animal studies that are putting little vibrating uh, devices at, with you know, the same sort of sound level uh, stimulation on uh, rats or, or you know, at this point to look at the effect. And there have been a couple of studies um, with humans uh, looking at blood flow um, for purposes of uh, the no reflow effect after uh, stent or bypass surgery. There's a published protocol uh, on, and um, some patents uh, that are related to 
uh, rebuilding blood vessels, coronary angiogenesis, as we call it. Uh, and so I think that those areas will develop. And the another area I'm now getting more involved in uh, quite closely is related to uh, spinal uh, alignment, uh, disc regeneration, uh, bone cell density. So in other words, the whole orthopedic area. And what we're seeing there is some very interesting things that, for example, spinal resonance, the resonance at which um, the spine seems to respond to sound is also 40 hertz and it becomes most flexible at that, that frequency. What we've seen is that when you stimulate uh, bone in, in the spine, that uh, it releases, it, it activates or it stimulates um, RNA level uh, response, which uh, changes the, um, the, the uh, healing level on, uh, on the discs and so on. So this is very much in its infancy in, in the research. There have been, you know, like a dozen studies worldwide that I can put my finger on only. And so I'm currently uh, putting forward a study right now, which we expect to, to start on back pain uh, lower back pain that would use sound as a stimulus, uh, where we would uh, stimulate the spine uh, with sound and to see whether uh, how we can affect back pain with that. Uh, and so, yeah, I think I think these areas like like bone, as I call it, uh, brain, blood, and body uh, are are coming. Um, one of the another study we're just trying to get going. Um, is related to cerebral palsy, for example, where we try to reduce spasticity in kids with cerebral palsy by uh, stimulating their their you know muscular uh, and control system. And uh, some studies, there's one out of uh, Croatia that has been quite successful that sh- sort of points in this direction. So I think the the research in this area, as in real scientific controlled studies that are looking at mechanism and how. The, the, these uh, things work at the cellular level, not just you know at the conspiracy theory level. Uh, actually, will uh, will show that there's some real potential in this area, and I expect to see that over the next ten years there will be uh, new therapies that will uh, will come to the fore for uh, any of these four areas. Yeah, well, just one one quick comment. I know that uh, bone can conduct sound, and I know that's how some headsets and things work. Um, yeah, well, so, you know, know, makes sense. Well, most dramatic, of course, is that uh, and this was done by a colleague of mine, Ladan Yu, at the University of Toronto. When you stimulate bone cells with sound, they grow greater bone cell density. And so osteoporosis, for example, which is a problem in, in aging people who have calcium loss, potentially, you know, you can take the calcium and apply vibration and, re, you know, improve the quality of your bones. So whether this is applied through whole body vibration through these nice vibrating platforms, the frequencies in my opinion are often not fast enough or through sitting on a device like, like my sound Oasis VTS device, the, you know, the, the perfect, the ideal way to apply that vibration still needs to be uh, researched, but in some form, that sort of therapy I think is, is coming in the next year. Yeah. I mean, if uh, you keep experimenting and you find the right frequencies for, you know, all the tissues in our body or I mean, dozens and dozens of different parts of our body. I mean, you can really affect people in many ways, I'm sure. You could have a yes. catalog of, of sound depending on their condition and at least maybe ameliorate it a few percent at least, not a lot more. 
Exactly. Uh, you know, that we're, we're vibratory creatures. Every cell in our body has some vibratory level. We're rhythmic, uh, you know, from heart rate to breath rate to, you know, our, our wake-sleep cycle to uh, women's menstrual cycle. I mean, we're, we, human beings are, are rhythmic uh, creatures, and so it makes sense that we uh, focus our research to try to determine which and what of that we can affect in some way. And as uh, Rudolfo Linas said many years ago, uh, music may be the machine language of the brain, and we simply need to find out what the programming is for that machine language so we can understand and, and, and control how we, how we affect it. Well, very good, Willie. Um, just to recap, what's the best way for people to uh, find out more about you and hopefully when it gets back in stock, order some of the products? Where can they go? Uh, well, I have a, a web website, uh, leebartel.com. Uh, people can go there. My TED Talk is on that page. There are links to where you can get the, uh, the sound uh, device. You can get the soundtracks. Uh, unfortunately, not links to buy my, my music. I mean, that's basically you look for it on... Uh, on uh, Apple Music or iTunes uh, or on uh, Amazon. There's some left. Um, and uh, that, you know, that's basically the best uh, best way to find me or just do a regular Google search. I pop up all over the place. That's great. Well, Lee, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been an interesting call. Well, and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to rattle on about uh, what I find exciting and find enjoyable about my work. It's interesting because it's not harmful. It's not a drug. It's not a... A surgery it's it's nice that uh there are ways to help people without chopping them to pieces or medicating them you know exactly it's it's so powerful given how uninvasive it is and how you know we don't see very many negative side effects from music uh you know i mean we could potentially say that if you pound yourself with low frequency like some djs do there there are some potentially negative effects but most people are not going to do that and so right. uh, yeah, I mean, there are obviously some, some uh, things that we, in, in using something like the low-frequency vibration devices, we, there are you know, conditions we say, be careful about using this. Um, we have no idea what the effect, for example, is on, on uh, uh, in, when, a, when a woman is pregnant on, on the forming of the fetus and the baby as it develops. Or, for example, because the devices tend to have pretty powerful magnets because of the transducers, if you have a have a, a, a pacemaker, you know, you don't want to hold that pacemaker up against a magnet and get the thing to stop. But, you know, those are sort of pretty logical things one has to watch. Otherwise, most everything else, uh, no problem at all. Well, very good, Lee. Thanks again for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.